everyone and welcome back to the fourth episode of Autism with a Pinch of Salt. In today's episode, I'm joined by Claire Truman, who is the author of The Teacher's Introduction to Pathological Demand Avoidance, and she is the founder of Spectrum Space. In today's episode, we talk a lot about PDA and what that means for teachers and PDA in the classroom. Just a quick note before we start, for those of you that don't know, PDA is quite a contentious topic at the moment within academic research, um, but it is widely understood at the moment as a profile of the autistic spectrum. So it's not in the DSM-5 or the ICD-10 or 11, which are the diagnostic manuals. So it's not a diagnosis as such. But it is recognised as a profile of autism. So you have to be autistic to have PDA, but not all autistic people have PDA. PDA stands for pathological demand avoidance, but it's also sometimes known as extreme demand avoidance. And what that means is those that are PDA have an anxiety-driven need to feel in control, which can affect everyday life, everyday demands and expectations, including things that the individual wants to do or enjoys. But what's important to remember is that this is an anxiety-driven need to feel in control. And that means as well, anything that is perceived to be a demand could cause the individual to feel the need to avoid it. And this can affect every aspect of their lives. And it's also worth noting as well that PDAers can also mask the way that all autistics can. So a PDAer can go into school and follow every single demand of that day and then come home and really explode because they've had to keep it together through the day. I'd also like to mention that those with a, a PDA profile can often be misconstrued as misbehaving or I'm using inverted commas here, naughty, because they're avoiding everyday demands. What's important to note about this is that it is anxiety driven. So for those avoiding the everyday demands, their demand avoidance is no different from somebody taking a panic attack. You wouldn't say to somebody who is maybe curled up in a ball sobbing because they are so anxious that they have to just get up and get on with it. With those that are demand avoidant, it's really important to keep that in mind as well. We wouldn't just say, just do it, just do it. Actually, the more you try and push a demand, the more likely they are to avoid it. Um, And it is, as I say, anxiety driven. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I really enjoyed it. I learned loads from Claire as well. And I read her book before we'd done the episode. And I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It's available on Amazon and I'll pop a link within the the description of the podcast. Thank you. Thanks again, Claire, so much for for coming on today. I so appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, Thank you. So just to start off with, can I ask you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you started working with autistic individuals and specifically PDAers as well? 
Yeah, so um, my brother's autistic, my younger brother. He's three years younger than me. And that was how I became interested in autism in the first place. I actually trained as a mainstream teacher. I taught humanities in mainstream schools for a couple of years. But I always knew that I wanted to teach in autistic autism specific schools I was kind of doing the mainstream just to get it out of the way get a bit of experience but I kind of knew that wasn't where I was going to stay so as soon as I could as soon as I got that under my belt I went off and taught in a couple of special schools and one of them was there were a few lads kind of two or three lads where they had that PDA profile um not the diagnosis but the profile of need and um I worked a lot with them and that's where the interest in, in working with PDA has came from, just working with them in that school, because it was a very different way of teaching and supporting them to supporting the other 95 children in the school. <laughs> it was a very different approach. So from that, did, how did the other staff within that school deal with the, the children? Do you think that it was managed well? Was it quite tricky just without the sort of diagnosis of PDA or... Was everybody sort of able to adjust without having that that diagnosis as such? I think at first it was really tricky. Um, uh, we didn't know a lot about PDA when we first started working with them. We'd read Phil Christie's book, so that was really helpful. That's Understanding Pathological Demand Avoidance Syndrome in Children. That was a really helpful book, so we'd all swatted up on that. <laughs> but apart from that, we didn't really have a lot of experience, and we were very used to the strategies that are maybe traditional best practice strategies for supporting autistic learners. Those were our bread and butter. So you had to unlearn a lot of that and that takes time. Yeah, so there was a lot of that, but the school did invite Phil Christie and Ruth Fiddler to do some training. So that was great. And we went on conferences um, run by the NAS. So we learned, we learned more as we went along, but a lot of it was learning on the ground. That's amazing though, even the fact that the school were so proactive you know to to go out you know you and your your colleagues read the the Phil Christie book which is another one of my favorites as well and then invited them in for for training that sounds that sounds really good and a really supportive establishment yeah it was amazing it was a really lovely place to work and they um yeah they really went out of their way to find new ways to to support people with strategies that we maybe weren't so familiar with but it was a lot of learning as we went and getting things wrong (laughs) and then picking yourself up and trying to find a better way yep so you recently released your book that was in July is that right yes Yes, because I was in the pre-order Oh. <laughs> um, I pre-ordered and waited for it, um, for it coming in and I couldn't put it down once I started. I actually I so enjoyed it. Um, oh, thank you. You're welcome. So what inspired you to, to write the book? Uh, it was a few students that I worked with, really, that inspired me to write the book. Um, so the, the students that I spoke about who were at the school that I worked at and then after after working at the school I set up my own provision for students with PDA and that kind of profile with or without the diagnosis and working with them just made me think this is such a different way of teaching and I didn't know any of this when I started and I should write it down (laughs) and uh, I saw on Twitter Jessica Kingsley Publishers were advertising saying we'd like books about PDA and I thought do you know what I think I've done made enough mistakes that I've got a book out of it now. <laughs> so let's write them all down. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's that's amazing. 
And you're also doing a PhD at the moment, is that correct? Yes, very slowly. The university have been really, really flexible because it's taken me years and years and years and years. Um, I should have been finished by now and I just keep asking for more time. <laughs> um, and they keep saying, oh, go on. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's looking at the education experiences of children with, and young people with PDA and also doing a little bit of comparison with the experiences of other autistic learners and seeing where there are similarities and differences. Wow that sounds that sounds amazing actually wow how did you find the time to juggle your PhD and your work and writing the book? Uh, it was quite difficult like I say the university were really flexible and um, so I'm very grateful to them for letting me um, carry on working and carry on writing and sort of saying come back to us when <laughs> you know when you're ready and that was very kind of them but also but juggling it with work was tricky but then also I was writing about work so it helped and it was tricky to juggle but it helped as well yeah all right and so spectrum space. So when we're talking about work, I'm assuming that's that spectrum space. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? So spectrum space, spectrum space has been two things. It gets a bit confusing. So the first thing that I set up that was called spectrum space was a centre and community interest company. So a social enterprise. And that operated from a uh, January 2017 to July 2019 and it was a small centre in the village where I live and we had um, nine students come to us who had a PDA profile, an autism diagnosis and were struggling to attend school and they came to us instead of school. So uh, how it worked was two adults, we had two adults for every child so we had a really high staff ratio and those two adults would go to the child's house in the morning, sort of say, how are you feeling? Do you fancy going to see Claire in the centre or would you like to do something else? And if the child wanted to stay at home, they would learn at home um, and they'd WhatsApp me for some advice and I'd send them some, some advice about what they could do while they were in the home. If they wanted to come into centre, that was great and I had things ready. And uh, sometimes they would be halfway up the A3 and pull into Starbucks and do some learning there because um, that was where the child wanted to be it was just whatever and wherever the, the learning would take place wherever the child wanted it to be so that was spectrum space one and spectrum space two is that I now provide distance learning programs for children who are out of school so I send them things by post all my students have a PDA profile. I send them things in a very PDA-friendly way in the post and they open their presents every Friday and they're linked to learning objectives and they carry out the tasks in their own time. Wow, that's amazing. I'll talk about Spectrum Space 1 first and then we'll move on to Spectrum Space yeah. 2, if that's okay. So Spectrum Space 1, how, how did you go about opening up that centre? Probably with very little research in retrospect <laughs> I kind of just went for it <laughs> so um, I I was working at the school and I was working with these lads with the PDA profile and the, the school had been great they'd done you know they'd got the training in they'd done everything but there was something about the school setting that just wasn't lending itself to meeting the needs of particularly one of those students and 
I actually had a little bit of a temper tantrum. I went into my manager's office and said, I don't know why we're doing this. He doesn't even need school. He needs a life apprenticeship and just walked out again because <laughs> um, I was nothing was working and I, it wasn't it wasn't a good day. And and then a kind of a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, actually, maybe that's what I need to provide. Maybe school isn't right for everyone. Maybe some people need learning in a different way. And so Spectrum Space, the centre, was very much not a school. We were registered as a childcare provision, not as an education provider. I did that deliberately so that we were not asked to look like a school. We were in a hired cricket pavilion in the village and it, it didn't feel like a school. You walked in, it felt like a youth club, but there happened to be learning going on. But there was no, it's 9.30, it's time for numeracy. It was very much welcome. Come in, have a cup of coffee. What would you like to learn about today? So, yeah, that was that was kind of where the idea came from. But I had a meeting with the council, said, if I build it, will you come? Uh, and they said yes. And I had enough money in my savings account to pay the lawyer to draft the contract. That was it. Everything else was on promise from the council, basically. If I invoice you on this date, will you pay? Because otherwise we can't pay our staff. Um, and they said yes. And, and then we, we built it and they came. That's amazing. I think we need a spectrum space and if they local authority round about the UK because um, that sounds amazing what what were the the age ranges would you take on children from primary school age or was it mainly high school or a mix of both it was a bit of a mix the youngest we could go was eight because there are um some Ofsted regulations about looking after children younger than eight you can't have them in the same space as the 17 year old there's some there's some regulations there that that would have made things complicated so eight was our bottom and our eldest was 18 so yeah it was a full range brilliant and with spectrum space what worked well and were there any challenges I think the flexibility worked well we set it up to be so flexible so things like just little things like risk assessments we had a risk assessment app on the phone, it was just a Google form um, that staff could access on their phones so that if the child said, I don't want to go to the park anymore, I want to go swimming, with three clicks of a button, they could go swimming. And it would let me know they're not going to the park anymore, they're going swimming. It would let the parents know we're going swimming and all the control strategies were in there and they knew to take the armbands or whatever. And that was it. And so it was that flexible. We could be anywhere doing anything. They built up really nice relationships with each other, the students. We had had got a really fond memory of us having dinner all together because eating was a real difficulty for a lot of the students that we were working with. They found lunchtime really stressful. But with a lot of hard work and building of relationships, off their own bat, they decided they all wanted to eat together one day, which hadn't happened. And we were about two, three months in and it hadn't happened ever. And I mean, if Ofsted had come in, like some of them were eating kebabs from the kebab shop and if Ofsted had come in they probably wouldn't have liked it but for us it was such a milestone that actually they decided they all wanted to eat together and how that looked was very you know different for different children but they were all around one table off their own back eating lunch together and that you know they built such a strong relationship that they felt safe doing that so the the relationships were really important but there were challenges you asked about challenges as well (laughs) Um, and the biggest challenge was actually came out of being registered as a childcare setting because there are confusing laws around what counts as full-time education 
and you can't offer full-time education unless you register as a school. But if you register as a school, you have to do all the assemblies and the literacy at 9.30 and all that, you have to do all of that. And that wasn't going to work. So we were kind of caught in a catch-22 where we couldn't provide full-time education because we weren't a school, but we couldn't register as a school because the children wouldn't access that education. So we could only provide 17 hours. It ended up being 17 and a half hours per child per week. <laughs> um, so we were sat there with a the clock <laughs> ticking it all off. And yeah, we got into a lot of kind of arguments with the Department of Education over that. And that was quite a big challenge, just trying to stay within the law, but meet the needs of the children was actually more difficult than it should have been. Yeah, that sounds really tricky. And is there, so there's no way around that. You would, you would hope that, you know, the Department for Education, you could have an open and honest conversation with them and be like, look, for, for these children, this absolutely does not work. And they would, I know legislation and, and law involved, but you would hope that they would say, okay, well, we'll look at this for, for the future. Is that something that you got back from them or? I mean, if you, I had so many emails and so many phone conversations and, and an interesting meeting with Jeremy Hunt, who happens to be our local MP. Um, <laughs> and a letter from Damien Hines, who was education secretary at the time. So we really tried everything. I wrote endless emails to the Department for Education I had loads of phone conversations with them, with Ofsted. Um, with, we had a meeting with Jeremy Hunt, who was our local MP, uh, still is. Um, and Damien Hines, the education secretary at the time, wrote me a letter. So we were really trying everything. The problem came because, um, and this still really frustrates me because it doesn't make any sense as far as I can see, the children had a need for education otherwise than at school in their EHCPs. I don't know if that's a... A term that's familiar outside of England but it means that no school is suitable uh, and school itself is not suitable all of our children fell into that category but the law says that if you educate someone with an EHCP for more than 17 hours a week you have to register as a school and I was saying but their EHCPs say they can't go to school those EHCPs themselves say they can't go to school and the answer I was getting back was, but it's an EHCP, so you have to register as a school. So that doesn't make sense, and it still doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, if anyone listening is a lawyer and wants to help, then I'm still trying to bang that drum. Absolutely. That's really frustrating because you then have this like number of children that are essentially sitting in limbo, and we certainly have that up here as well, where education isn't, an educational setting isn't appropriate for them. Mainstreams, you know, whether that's mainstream not being appropriate, but then they're not getting into the specialist establishment because there's no issue with maybe their cognitive learning. But then it's where do they go? Because this mainstream setting isn't appropriate. The ASN setting isn't appropriate. So where do we, you know, where where do we go from, from there? And it just feels like these children are or, yeah just getting left in left in limbo it's it's such a shame would you do spectrum space again spectrum space one I'm gonna call it um would you do that again if you if you could if the law changed around it I think I would there that that caused us a lot of headaches because it meant that the children had to top up their education with other providers who weren't didn't really exist so I knew that we were giving children half an education and that wasn't very 
that wasn't great. And um, also, unfortunately, I became unwell for a little while. And that was kind of the final thing that closed it down. But I'm better now. I think I would give it a go again if the lands if the policy landscape changed but I think all the while you're capped at the 17 hours you're not able to provide that what that offer should look like you're not able to provide what those children need so if we could go full-time then yes yep that makes sense moving on over to spectrum space two so what you're doing just now can you tell us a little bit about that when did you start when did you start doing doing that so very soon after the centre closed, just I gave myself a little bit of time to get back on my feet. And then I started uh, with one student who was living quite a long way away from me, who'd come out of school and um, needed some sort of educational provision. And uh, I started, yeah, these boxes for him. So and now I've got uh, quite a few students on, on doing my boxes, as I call them. Um, and I send a physical box of stuff. So it might, and it's linked to their interests. So one that I sent recently had was for a girl who likes Frozen, the music, the movie Frozen, and had a little game where you fish ice out of a spinning frozen disc. And I gave her a stopwatch and we were working on time. So it was how fast can she fish the ice out of the disc? How fast can her mum do it? Who was fastest? Can you tell the difference between three minutes and 30 seconds? And do you know that? Uh, one's faster than the other and that kind of thing so it's all linked to their interests if they're interested in football it's about football if they're interested in formula one it's about formula one and it's all it's all linked to to what they're interested in but it ticks the boxes of the english functional skills curriculum wow that's brilliant and do you take on pupils from out with england would you take pupils on out with england like further afield in the uk uh, yeah, I, as long as their English functional skills curriculum was what they wanted to achieve, because um, I'm not familiar with anything else. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so as long as I would take them from anywhere that DHL will deliver to, as long as they're they're happy to follow that curriculum. I mean, it's pretty universal curriculum. You know, it's sort of skills that would be useful for anyone anywhere. And at the moment, I have a waiting list. But if anyone listening wants to go on the waiting list, they can check out the website and drop me an email brilliant that sounds great it must take up quite a wee bit of your your time but it's just amazing that you're putting all that effort into each individual's education um, and looking at okay this is their interests and how can we use that to how can we adapt that to um, include educational um, opportunities learning opportunities that's what I was looking for throughout the book there's some really brilliant ideas for teachers who maybe don't have support in a mainstream classroom do you think that it is possible to adapt the classroom to be a low demand environment I think it is I think you have to be honest and say it's harder um, I think I'd be lying if I said it was it was easy to do. But I think there are things that you can do that actually are useful for all students. A lot of PDA strategies are not um, are not going to do any harm to anyone else. And <laughs> um, so things like uh, presenting a lesson starter as a question that needs solving rather than a demand that needs to be followed through. So something like I wonder how many shapes we can make out of these three tiles is more inviting than I want you to make a triangle. So that, and and that works for, for all students. A collaborative approach is actually 
a good skill for all students to learn. It's more useful in adulthood to know how to collaborate and negotiate with people than it is to know how to follow instructions because I was very good at following instructions as a child, but in adulthood, no one's telling me what to do. So actually learning how to collaborate, how to negotiate, how to follow your own agenda, but get something done that helps someone else. All of those skills that, that lend themselves to PDA strategies are actually useful for all children. So I think it, um, I think it's definitely doable. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And that actually brings me on to a question I was thinking about when you were explaining um, Spectrum Space One and how flexible it was for, for the, the pupils that were, were involved. Some educational staff are, are certainly actually just people in general who don't understand PDA might see it as sort of folding to the wants of, of the child um, and just letting them away with it. I know and you know that that's not the case, but for people that have maybe never heard of PDA before or don't really understand what it is, what would you say to them? How would you advise them if they had that sort of attitude of, well, you're just letting the child dictate? And um, I think... Yeah, it's an interesting one that if I had not met anyone with PDA, I would think like that. Like when I started teaching in mainstream, I was quite, I wasn't strict, but I wasn't using PDA strategies in my classroom at all. And I think actually now I've, now I've met people with PDA and I've learned more about PDA. And um, I think you could, I, I kind of want to say, well, you can try. Like you can, you can try uh, just doing the do, do as you're told thing, but it might take you 18 years to achieve that. And even if by some miracle you did achieve it in 18 years, what else have you taught them? You've taught them to do as they're told and now no one's telling them what to do. So you, it would be better to work together to upskill the children to become the adults they need to be. And that's going to look different for each child because it always does look different for each child. Um, but it's going to look particularly different maybe uh, for PDA children in terms of they'll need the skills to use their autonomy to achieve what needs to be achieved. And that can only really be taught through PDA strategies. You can't teach someone to be autonomous by telling them what to do. <laughs> um, you have to work with them. So, Yep, that's great. And that brings us on kind of nicely to the next thing I was going to ask something in the book that you've you've mentioned which I just thought was amazing was involving the child or the young person and the decision making so the meetings that are about them involving them and that where possible and I think that this is something that all schools should take on board whether the child has a PDA profile or not and I, I think if an individual has a level of autonomy over their learning, then you're going to see much more productivity. And I'm assuming that this was largely successful in your experience, um, doing it in spectrum space, even just making ways where possible that the child could be involved indirectly. You know, if the meeting was going to be too much pressure for them, for them to, you, you'd mentioned, you know, writing a letter or recording their, their requests to be played at the meeting did this work well for, for you yeah I wish I'd done more of it um as I was writing the book I thought actually I could have done more of that uh, but I think I remember actually back in a school bringing a 
young man with a PDA profile to his annual review. And it was just little things like he doesn't drink tea and coffee. So bring a hot chocolate sachet with you. Otherwise, he can't join in with everyone else having a drink. And, and just little things like that that made the difference to him feeling welcome rather than him feeling like an add-on. And him having, he was given as long as he wanted to say what he wanted to say and also was given an option for where he could go if he didn't want to be there, um, which uh, is more than I got in the meeting. I didn't get an option to go and uh, do soft play afterwards, but never mind. Um, <laughs> but um, to, to have those kind of, those, it's those little things, I think, that make someone feel welcome. And then it sets the tone that actually you're the most important person in the room. Um, and also, not even just the big formal meetings, conversations that I had with him that were just casual conversations. I tried to make sure that we were working together to a common goal. So he struggled quite a lot with when he was feeling angry. Sometimes he would hurt people or, or himself or, or uh, damage things. And so we, were to, we would talk a lot in those conversations about, right, well, let's work together. I'm noticing that you're finding this difficult. Let's work together to understand more about how your brain works and then how we can make it easier for you rather than I want you to reflect on what you've done. It was very much, we've got a problem, but we've both got this problem together that we're going to solve together. Yeah, absolutely. It just feels like it makes much more sense to say to a person, I see that you're really struggling with that. How can we combat this together? Rather than saying, you need to stop doing that, you know, and and really sort of point pointing the fingers when you approach it from that really collaborative and empathetic way as well because you're when you're saying I see that you're struggling with that you're acknowledging how that person's feeling and then saying right what can we do together to to help that I think even adults or and even children that aren't autistic or don't have a PDA profile they're going to be much more open to working around that than what you would be if you go and all guns blazing, pointing your fingers. How I'd rather people spoke to me. Like yeah. if if a boss says, to, not that I, ha- I am my own boss now, but um, <laughs> when I had a boss, <laughs> and if a boss boss says to me, you know, you're doing that wrong and you need to change, that is that isn't going to inspire me to do my best work. Whereas being told, okay, we're we're aiming for this. I can see that we're not getting there at the moment. How can we work together to get there now? Um, is a lot more motivating. Absolutely. My most favourite part of the book, and it's quite near the, the start of the book, and that was a point that I was like, oh, this this is great, is where you speak about prioritising demands and you use the video game lives or the battery as an example. So for those that are listening, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it's a weird analogy, isn't it? <laughs> but um, it's about what I noticed is that People issue demands in the classroom in sort of chronological order. So sort of as they occur to you. So you'd start with line up, walking quietly, hang your coat here, hang your bag here, sit down here, get your things out, write the date, underline the date, don't use pen, use pencil, put your name on the top. And you've got sort of 10 demands issued in the first five minutes. And actually none of them were particularly important. And if someone is experiences a lot of anxiety around demands then that's a lot of unnecessary anxiety to put on someone and if someone has a very low tolerance for demands you've used it all up and you've maybe used it all up before you've got to the important things like 
keeping yourself safe and and demands around that so the the idea of the video game is that if you're playing a video game you save your lives for the most important uh, battles that you might encounter on the way and if you're working with a pda you want to save your demands for the things that really matter to and for them so you don't want to use them up on underline the date because that's not important you want to save it for that looks awfully high. Let's try feet on the floor. <laughs> um, so you want to save it for those things. And the the tricky part is that it's not always five lives every day. Um, so someone's tolerance of demands, everyone's tolerance of demands fluctuates depending on who they're with, time of day, how hungry you are, how tired you are, how noisy it is outside, all of those kind of things. So you have, you're playing a very tricky video game because you have to constantly look at your lives bar and see how many you've got left. But by keeping in tune with somebody um, and really thinking about, is this important to or for the child? Then you're prioritising the right. That makes sense. I just, I love that analogy. I thought it's a great way of, it's a great way of putting it. And in the the Phil Christie book, um, another thing that I really liked, it was almost like there was two scales and on one side it had demands and then on the other, the other scale it had anxiety. Tolerance. Yeah, demands and tolerance. Yeah. Yes. One dials the child's style and one dials the adult style. Yep. And as, as the child's tolerance increases, your demands can increase. But if the child's tolerance decreases, then your demands need to decrease. Yes. And I, I really, really enjoyed that illustration. And then I know it's slightly different than when I, when I read yours. I thought, great, they go really nicely together as well. Slightly off topic um, and this is something I'm, I'm quite interested in at the moment I've done a wee, been doing a wee bit of reading so you mentioned very briefly at the start of your book about how PDA is slight, slightly contested subject at the moment it's a little bit controversial particularly with some autistic researchers such as Richard's, Richard Woods I try and read up on both opinions just to keep me balanced from an academic perspective but having a child that's potentially PDA at home I do struggle to see it fitting in anywhere other than being an autistic profile however I appreciate all opinions are valid and I really just want to I wanted to really commend you on how balanced you were in the book and I really enjoyed reading that section as well because it was so it was really balanced it wasn't you know, saying, I think this is wrong and I think this is wrong and I think this is right or this is right. You kept it really balanced and it was a really nice, it was a really nice way to, to read it. So my question sort of following on from that is, do you think that PDA will ever be recognised as a separate condition or, or neurotype for autism? Or do you think that, from autism, sorry, or do you think that it will remain as it is, as a profile of autism? I think the latter is more likely, but I think it could go either way because there's so much we don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, there is so much we don't know. Interestingly, Elizabeth Newsom, when she first identified it, um, considered it to be separate to autism, but part of the same family of conditions. So that that's interesting. Our understanding of autism has changed a lot since then. So uh, whether she would say the same thing now, I'm not sure. But there are some people who were diagnosed by Elizabeth Newsom who have a PDA diagnosis but not an autism diagnosis so that's quite interesting and um, people who are slightly diagnosed quite early in PDA's history and <laughs> um, I, th- I think all the PDAs I've met are very confident in their autistic identity 
So I find it difficult to conceptualise it as something that's separate from autism. But as soon as I meet someone who, for whom the autistic identity doesn't resonate and PDA does, well, then we need to find strategies and supports that work for those people. So I think we do need to keep an eye on whether or not there are people who would benefit from these strategies who are not autistic, because that's important too. It's important that everyone gets their needs met. Absolutely. I think you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think we, we have to appreciate that regardless of what one side is saying or what the other side is saying, there are children, adults, individuals out there who need these strategies adapted to them in order for them to thrive confidently. And regardless of the label, I suppose we have to adapt in order to bring them the nicest environment possible for them. It's just, yeah, it's quite, it's a bit of a hot topic, I think, at the moment. And um, I've just been been keeping my, keeping my eye on it, but also trying to keep an open an open mind. I find the critics of PDA as a concept, I find they've actually really informed my practice because they ask challenging questions. And I think it's, I'm going to get this wrong now and that'll be embarrassing, but I think it's Damien Milton who um, said when he was talking about teachers and, and the interaction between adults and children with a PDA um, profile, if, if that's what it is, he was saying, who has the pathological need to control whom? because sometimes the adults seem to have a pathological need to control the child. And actually that, that was a bit of a sucker punch. That was a good, that was a good point. Um, and it, you know, it's, I don't agree with everything he said about PDA, but that, that um, made me think, stop and think, actually, yes. Am I fighting for control in a way that's unhelpful for the child? Probably Absolutely. quite a lot of the time. That's, that, it's, that's a great point. I think often in, in, particularly in educational settings as well, there's a little bit, might feel like a bit of a power struggle mm. for teachers and then these children that don't conform to traditional expectations. And when you've got a child that's maybe button heads with you a little bit, I think that what would come more naturally for the adult is then to knuckle down as well. But for for this population of, of people that we're that we're talking about, it's just going to have the it's just going to have the the opposite effect. Nobody's nobody's going to nobody's winning at that point. Um, and I suppose it really is is us as adults that need to change our way of thinking and and interacting. And and like you said earlier on, these strategies are not harmful for other children if we're introducing it in a in a classroom setting. Or even in a home environment where there's maybe one child that's demand avoidant and then another that, that's not, these strategies aren't going to, giving the child autonomy over their own choices isn't going to harm them in any way. But like you say, it's only going to be beneficial later on in life where they've learned to negotiate and, and then I suppose advocate for themselves and their wants as well. Definitely. And just as a, as a final question, for any teachers listening that might have come across or might come across in the future a, a PDA or in their classroom, have you got any top tips to give them? Oh, um, I think it's all about that collaboration. It's getting alongside them. 
So I'd say stop standing at the front, sit down next to them, working together, find your goal, work out what your aim is. And your aim isn't to get them to do as they're told. You think that's their aim. The aim is not. Uh, the aim is to improve their literacy levels, increase their independence. That Those are the aims. So sit down alongside them and work together to get to that. And the PDA Society has a wealth of information for educators and it's all free. And so I'd point people to that as well. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Claire. Um, I've learned loads just listening to you, listening to you, and that's from me reading the book as well, and then then listening to you. I've just that's been so beneficial for for me. And thank you so much for taking your time to come and, and chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great to talk. Thank you.